Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. Welcome to Culture Bites. My name's Dominic Gawley. I'm a consultant with Human Synergistics Australia, and I'm joined by Australian New Zealand Chairman, Sean McCarthy. Hey, Sean. Hi, Dominic. So, Sean, I've got you on the podcast this week as a bit of an expert in culture, and I wanted to particularly talk about one set of causal factors, which in our measure we label as technology, but that's maybe a bit of a misleading title talk about why that is. But job design, essentially, is how I think about how do we design jobs. And I wanted to talk to you about it because I'm personally – very interested in this one because it often comes out a bit lower. It's often one companies have have to look at, but it's often also not well understood. Like, what can we actually do? What should we be thinking about in this space? So, I want to get your insight in that area if I can today. How does that sound? Sounds great. So, I guess kicking off then, Sean. You know, when we talk about job design, what is it about it and its connection to culture? Like, how does it actually shape and influence culture? Sure. Good question. Let me just step back a minute to that notion of the use of the word technology. It's we, we do tend to use technical words. We often wonder, of course, with too much, but nonetheless, the whole notion of technology is how an organization takes inputs and turns them into outputs. So you have all these things coming in, logistics supplies, product supplies, raw materials, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, people. And how do we now take all those inputs and turn them into a ballpoint pen that we make and sell or whatever it might be? Mm-hmm. And in particular, the aspect of technology that we're looking at in our survey work is the job design aspect. So how do we take all these tasks that need to be performed in the organization and bundle them into certain jobs? And so its its impact on culture, I think, is really, really important to think about. Job design affects the way people see their contribution to the organization's outcomes. And if they can't see that, it's going to be low in motivation, it's going to be low in satisfaction, low in engagement, etc. The more people uh, have jobs that are designed in ways that allow them to see the outcomes of their efforts, then the more that's going to raise what we call achievement motivation and achievement thinking, a belief that my effort can make a difference, a preoccupation with standards of excellence, a belief in cause and effect and this kind of thing. So the jobs themselves convince me or teach me or I learn from the job how I am expected to behave within the organization and that then in turn affects that level of satisfaction. So for one of a a very easy example, uh, I mean in a constructive culture the job creates expectations for things like, and this is an item in the survey, think ahead and plan. So is my job design allowing me to think ahead and plan? Or is it more actually about a passive defensive culture, which is check decisions with superiors? So uh-huh. every time I have a decision to make, I better go and check with the boss that he or she is happy with that. An aggressive defensive one might be set unrealistically high goals. So they get another item in the survey. So do I believe I am expected to set goals that are almost impossible to achieve, which is part of an aggressive defensive culture? So the job design gives me messages every day of the week and all too often every day of the weekend how I am expected to think and behave around here, which is, of course, how we define culture. On that, Sean, because it sounded like there was overlap with kind of my manager, you know, like because sometimes my yeah. manager can expect me to check in, you know, yep. if, if anything's not, you know, as per standard. 
my manager can you know have these expectations so yep. i guess where's the difference between the kind of manager i have and a design of a job well of course the manager determines the design of the job in a very subtle way so although the the human resources department or people in culture whatever they're called may well have designed the job probably a long time ago it's not something that gets looked at time and time again but the jobs in its existence but around the fringes of that are these what we call motivational potential aspects of the job, like autonomy, variety, identity, uh, feedback, and significance. And that's what we measure with the organization effectiveness inventory. And you see, though, as you say, all too often, everything else might be sort of at or above the historic average. But so often what seems to be below that line, for want of a phrase, are these uh, job design factors. So the manager's effect, if we take autonomy as one aspect, mm. so autonomy is the extent to which I get to make decisions about how the job gets done. Mm. And of course, the oppositional manager will sort of say, well, we don't want the cleaners making decisions about CapEx expenditure. Well, of course they don't. That's not their part of their job. Right. But for the chief executive, so for the chief executive, autonomy might be around how we invest capital. For a cleaner, the autonomy might be about, well, do I start on the first floor or the third floor? Do I work down the building or up the building? Or these these decisions about how the job gets done. So you take autonomy. So although the job may have autonomy structured into it, let's say, so the cleaner has the option of which floor they clean first and in what order they do the process, et cetera, et cetera. They may even, may even have some influence over what particular product, cleaning product or whatever gets used. And that then boils down to when the rubber hits the road, the relationship now between the employee and the manager. Mm. So that if the employee, let's just pretend, has a job that has a reasonable amount of autonomy structured into it, a poor leader, a manager can take that autonomy away in seconds simply by being very prescriptive and restrictive around the way in which they manage that person, demanding that they check decisions with me before you commit to anything. I want you to start on level four and work down to the ground floor from there. So through my own leadership process, which is way too restrictive, I've actually taken the autonomy out of the job. So there's this very symbiotic relationship, as we always say, between leadership and culture. Right. So, yeah, that makes sense to me. And interesting what you're saying at the start there was about the motivational potential yeah. of jobs. And that's a interesting lens to put over it because I don't know if we do. Often, no, you know, most people don't think about how motivating actually is yeah. the way we've set this job up to yeah. be. Yep. Aren't we? Yeah, a couple of guys, Hackman and Oldham, wrote a book, I think, in 1980 from memory called Work Redesign. And uh, they were looking not so much at how to design jobs, but how to redesign jobs. And that's really what we're talking about when we, we are measuring job design, but we're talking about job redesign, which is making the job more motivational. And so they they identified these five core characteristics of every job, and they can have none of it and you can have a lot of it, and they are, but I'm sure most people will know this, autonomy, variety, identity, significance, and feedback. And so you can have none of that or you can have 10 out of 10 and et cetera. So that they developed a method for you know, sort of very qualitatively assessing the level of autonomy in a job, the level of variety in a job on a, I don't know, one to five scale or zero to five or something. And anyway, I'm telling you, and, and that, that then led to a mathematical formula which resulted in the motivational potential for the job. Uh, they got a little bit of criticism for the formula, but the essence of autonomy, variety, et cetera, is uh, profound. But anyway, I'm telling you all of that because, I mean, an example, but if I go back to 19, 
Oh, it would be 1991 probably, running a workshop, a series of workshops for the entire management population of one of our large banks. And this was at the advent of the development of technology in the banking sector, where uh, everything was being remoted, back office activities out of the branches into technology centres, lending centres, credit uh-huh. centres, call centres, etc. Anyway, I was talking with this group about job design, and we had a really interesting, robust discussion so I gave them the uh, page that happened to have Hackman and Oldman's formula on. I said, I want you to think about your job. So on a scale, let's just pretend I can't remember the details, one to five. How much autonomy do you have in your job? How much variety do you have, et cetera? And of course, they rated all of those factors quite high. Then I said, now I want you to turn around and think of a teller. Now I want you to rate the autonomy in a teller's role, the variety in a teller's role, et cetera. And the point was made when they looked at it and they said, bloody hell, there's not much motivational potential in those jobs, are there? And I said, no, and that's my point. So what can we do to make those jobs more motivational? Yeah, so let's pick up from there, Sean. You know, we've talked about a few different factors. So maybe if we just lay those out for people. So autonomy is, you know, can I make decisions in my role, as you talked about with the the cleaner. And sometimes I think of the counter example, you know, which is I can't make any decisions. Follow the the SOP step by yep. step, you know, A, B, C. You don't have any choice in it. What's the message I get culturally, yeah. the expectation, if that's the case? Well, it's kind yeah. of unplug your brain, do what you're told, isn't it? Correct. And that's a passive defensive culture. So just clock in, do what you're told, clock out. And uh, any needs for psychological fulfillment that might be achieved through a sense of autonomy is now going to be achieved on the golf course on a Saturday or the stamp club or whatever it might be because you're not getting it at work. And, and you do need it as a human being, so you've got to get it from somewhere. And actually, a great example of that that I've told on the podcast before, but I'll tell it again because I love it, was I was working with a city council and, and there was a guy who was in charge of their outdoor teams. Yeah, he's been doing it 25 years or something, You know, knows it like the back of his hand. They had a big project where they were redoing a main, major road and stuff, and it involved you know, doing the road, doing the gardens, doing the lawns, doing all sorts of stuff. And he could just tell everyone what to do, but instead walked the length of the road with them from one end to the other and said, you know, at the end of it, it needs to look like this kind of stuff as they went. Yep. Got to the end of the road, turned around and said, so guys, what do we need to do? And it's as simple yeah. as that. It was back on them. And Fantastic. that's to your point about it wasn't about yeah. they're going to decide capital expenditure and, you know, we're going to yeah. restructure the whole city council. It was within their job. Like they knew how to yeah. do it. Oh, we're going to shut down the road here and here. We're going to, you know, get the guys mowing in first because when we start on the road, they'll lose access. They knew how to do it, right? But it was putting the psychological control, ownership, back in their hands. Fantastic. Very good story about autonomy and identity and significance for that matter. Yeah, there you go. And so so some of the other ones, variety. So what's variety about and what's the motivational potential of that one? So variety is about getting to do different things. So it gives us, it increases a sense of meaningfulness from what I do. I'm not just doing the same thing all the time. Identity is a little bit more complex. It's a sense of completeness about what I do. So I do something from beginning to end. So a low identity is I do this and I have no idea what it's for. Right. And I, so I do part of the process, but I don't know the end result or the beginning of that process. Significance is what I do has impact on other people. So I think what I do is quite important. And feedback is I get feedback from my supervisor, feedback from the job itself, perhaps about how well I'm performing. And so the more we can introduce elements of those five traits into a job, 
the more likely it's uh, going to increase the what Hackman and Oldman call the critical psychological states of experiencing meaningfulness from what you do, responsibility for the outcomes of what you do, and knowledge of the actual results of what you do. And as I said, that's important for everybody. And if you don't get it at work, you get it somewhere else in the evenings or the weekend. And it sounds like, Sean, I don't know if I'm correct in this, but it sounds like to lack in these things often drives passive defensive messages. Would that be a fair statement? Totally. So if I've got no autonomy, I'm not going to answer five on a one to five scale to an an achievement item like think ahead and plan because I don't need to think ahead and plan. I just Mm -hmm. do. Follow the rules, yeah. Yeah, follow the rules, conventional, right? Variety, and I can go through all of them, but uh, the answers to that are fairly obvious. Yeah, so so I guess then the question, Sean, is if we're on board with this, okay, we need to design jobs in motivational ways. I guess, A, why doesn't that happen? And B, what can we actually do? <laughs> you know, because it sounds obvious, but yeah. it's so often lacking. Yeah. Uh, yeah, look, this is interesting. It goes back to what used to be very philosophical debates in the 1990s, in particular around the difference between efficiency and effectiveness. And as a fan of effectiveness rather than efficiency, I always used an expression that I'd learned at university a very long time ago that efficiency is the enemy of effectiveness. And so efficiency is uh, job design as it's originally been done. So as technology came down the pike in the 80s and the whole organisational system way of getting work done changed. I mean, for me, it shifted from uh, dictating a report to a typist to actually typing the thing myself on a laptop very, very quickly. And so those changes changed the way the jobs were designed. But those job designs were done for efficiency purposes. They were done by executives. I'm sorry, technological people. And it's an opportunity now to think about how can they be done differently? How can we add in some of those five variables? How can we make the jobs more interesting? How can we make the jobs more motivating? I think one of the the huge costs that people see with these poor job designs is around employee engagement, which, of course, is an outcome of culture. So if you have, as we talked about, poor job design, that leads to a passive defensive culture, which in turn leads to lower employee engagement scores or whatever. So we we know that there's a relationship there from research point of view, and it's very, very strong. But what people see, I mean, when I look at the the internet, Google, global trends and employee engagement and that sort of stuff, the the big providers, the big global providers talk about total engagement being at 39%. So I think from memory it ranged from about 39% engaged to a high of 68% engaged. Mm. So the different surveys offer here, they can't seem to agree on what the engagement level is, but it's obviously pretty low. I mean, even if you take the highest figure of 68%, that still means one in three people in your organization aren't engaged, which is pretty sad. So that's where we everybody can easily see the costs. And through our surveys, you can see the cost even more importantly on the culture and the implications that has for engagement. The issue with efficiency versus effectiveness is efficiency is about productivity and money. Effectiveness is about creating human opportunities. And you might, if you restructure the jobs with more autonomy, etc., not get the same level of productivity. It's possible. It's also possible to get even more productivity, of course, depending upon individual circumstances for that organization. But that's what people will look at. Is that those the so the efficiency people will say, but it's going to lose us time. It's going to reduce productivity. It's going to cost the business, and sometimes that is a truism. 
But what they don't know is what's the actual cost of having those very poor job designs throughout the organisation. So the employee engagement people will tell you the cost is low engagement. I will tell you the cost is, is actually dollars in employee turnover. So if you look at your staff turnover figure and multiply it by 1.5, take the total payroll, take the percentage of that payroll that represents employee turnover and multiply that by 1.5, you now have the dollar cost of staff turnover. And one of the major contributors to staff turnover is job design. So if I'm doing a relatively straightforward, highly restrictive, uh, highly proscribed kind of job, uh, then I'm more likely to be looking for opportunities somewhere else, more likely to leave, therefore be part of staff turnover. And it's going to cost you 1.5 times my salary eventually to replace me and lost time, recruitment fees. And companies don't do those costs. They'll do the cost of productivity and the cost of productivity losses, but they don't necessarily put dollars to some of the HR costs. So my argument would be is that, yes, if you put those elements into the jobs, you might get a short-term loss in productivity, but you'll probably get a long-term gain in productivity because of the motivational factors. Yes, you will get a loss of efficiency and a loss of time, but again, you'll get increased productivity. And more importantly, you'll get reduced staff turnover, and therefore you won't be spending 1.5 times every person who leaves salary to just keep going as we currently are. You know what the irony is, though, Sean? I would bet that the people on the efficiency side of that argument would say, with all this turnover, that's why we need all the standardization and idiot <laughs> and idiot proofing, right? Because, yeah. because you know, like yeah. we, we've got to train, otherwise it takes too long to train all these new people, you yeah. know, and it's kind of chicken and egg type stuff, I suppose, right? Where, well, we've got that turnover because of that design, you know? Well, again, there's an old truism that says simplification and standardization, compartmentalization and specialization are all the enemies of motivation, and they are. So we've we've seen it in various of the banking industry, for instance. It used to cross train people in the old days, so that if somebody called in sick, somebody else could step in and do the job quite easily. With technology, they brought in compartmentalization, standardization. It was actually called the McDonaldization of the uh, banking industry worldwide. And so now you have issues when a staff can't come, that people are not cross trained, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I'm not saying that everybody in the world should be cross trained, but there are ways and means of improving autonomy, variety, identity, significance, and feedback in any job. And they're not necessarily obvious. And I have to say, I mean, to come back to your story about the supervisor that walked the road, when people say to me, so how do we give our people more autonomy? My stock answer is, ask them. They'll tell you. They'll tell you. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, to- totally. On that, Sean, because you're talking about, you know, there's there's ways to do it. And it's not always obvious. And I think one of the hurdles I see with job designers, people can kind of freak out because like, oh my God, to redesign the jobs has all sorts of flow on effects for everything from processes through to like pay grade banding to all sorts of implications. And so I think people are like, you know, it's like butterfly flaps its wings and, you know, it causes a hurricane somewhere else. And so that can kind of freak people out of getting into it or it feels like a big deal. So I guess... You know, it might be interesting to think about what we could do if we're doing a huge redesign. But also, are there smaller, more subtle ways to actually start tweaking these causal factors without, you know, having it be a giant project? Yeah, absolutely. And when you look at the strategies, of course, much of the literature will talk about the potential, and they are potential disadvantages, are union issues because of boundaries, 
pay issues because of resizing, etc. But traditionally, there's uh, there's four, and I tend to go with the fourth, so I leave that for last. Strategies for job redesign, and that is job rotation, job enlargement, job enrichment, and job crafting. And is Screeds and screeds literature on this on the internet, including some of Hackman and Oldman's original work. So job rotation is pretty straightforward. It's rotating people around different jobs. And this is where one of the disadvantages here is you've got a lot of relearning going on. So you're going to have some time seepage, etc. But there are motivational advantages. So you might turn around and say the disadvantages outweigh the advantages on them. Job there, enlargement. Sorry. I was going to say there's also advantages, though, from my own experience, when you've worked across different positions inside an organization, suddenly you start connecting all sorts of dots across the organization of how do these pits fit together, you know? so Welcome to the argument of effectiveness versus efficiency. There you go. Yeah, so the argument against it is an efficient one and the argument for it is an effectiveness one. (laughs) Because you're going to avoid monotony, you're going to increase opportunities, you're going to increase learning, you're going to make some of your selection and promotion stuff just that little bit easier, etc. But from an efficiency point of view, you might lose a bit of time through the process. Do, do you think as well, Sean, it just kind of occurred to me, like, it's less certain, you know, it's certain we yeah. can capture efficiencies, it's less certain yeah. we're going to connect dots and what comes Correct. out of that. Which is what I keep going back to, why I keep going back to the cost of, of staff turnover. It's not looked at enough. In terms of the cost of having a defensive culture, if you take the payroll, take the percentage of people who leave in a year, and I think statistically in Australia the average rate right now is about 9%, and then multiply that by 1.5, it's going to come to a lot of dollars, whether you're a small organisation or a big organisation, it's only comparative. So the job rotation is one of the easier ones to do, but there's such strong efficiency arguments against it. The other option is job enlargement, where we give you more work to do, basically. So now you get to uh, do a variety of different things, etc. But this is where maybe if you're a unionised organisation, there might be issues with demarcation boundaries. So that's the uh, argument against that one. So, Sean, is that kind of like, you know, here's, here's a project, here's, yeah, you know, kind of uh, stuff that's not core to the role necessarily, but get involved absolutely. in the, the safety team or whatever? Correct. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is, to me, absolutely fascinating that, the future takes the past and reinvents it. I think Alvin Toffler said in his book, Future Chain, uh, Future Shock, many years ago. And by the way, he was the first guy to predict that everybody would be able to work from home. This was in 1973, I think, from memory. He was the first person to predict that once they develop these things we're calling computers and everybody's got one at home, you don't need to go to work anymore. Hmm. So it's only about 40 years before it's time. right. But a brilliant futurist nonetheless. But this whole notion of, sorry, I've lost track of where I was. At the enlargement? So, oh, yeah. Yep. yeah the, the whole notion of en- enlargement was around giving people extra things to do. So back in those days, I was working with manufacturing concerns. So this is where the future is the past reinvented. I was working with manufacturing firms where people were doing you know, basically pretty boring jobs in the factory. What could we do to make their jobs more motivational? And one of them, from a job enlargement point of view, the example you used, in fact, was, well, let's put some of these people onto the safety committee and give them the opportunity. Process improvement committees, these kinds of things, groups. We'd now call them project groups or problem-solving groups. So that's making the job larger. Nowadays, it's different contexts. So you're now talking about people on call centres, et cetera, back offices, et cetera. And it's really, when you think about a call centre, it's really the factory of the 1970s reinvented in the 2000s with technology. 
you still have exactly the same issues. The jobs have very low motivational potential, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But nonetheless, he can still enlarge the jobs or even possibly enrich the jobs by getting them involved in process improvement projects, et cetera, whatever it might be. The third option, so we've got job rotation, job enlargement is job enrichment, which is particularly focusing on autonomy and variety. So making the job richer, giving the individuals more uh, license to make decisions, giving them more challenging tasks to do. And so that directly impacts on achievement and the circumflex from a cultural point of view. So we see that as being a very positive thing. From the efficiency point of view, it assumes that people have the knowledge and ability to make the right decision, whatever that might be. Well, the answer to that one to me is quite easy. Give them some training and problem solving. We've done that for years. It's not difficult. The, and, uh, yeah, it's an interesting one, Sean. The If people can't make can't use their autonomy because they don't have the skills, knowledge, or yeah. I'd add to that clarity of what we're trying to achieve, then the solution shouldn't be to restrict, it should be to grow Correct. capability. Like you know <laughs> Correct. And this is this is, you know, dare I digress Douglas McGregor's theory, X and theory, Y, which anybody who studied management one oh one would have encountered probably in a couple of paragraphs in their textbook, but it's an extraordinarily powerful theory and he basically said this was way back in the 60s or something, 50s maybe even. But he said there's two types of managers. So it's, it's very simplistic, and he made it purposely very simplistic. Two types of managers, theory X and theory Y. And theory X believes that people don't really want to go to work, that if they won the lottery, they wouldn't, that they're fundamentally lazy, they don't want to take responsibility and be held accountable for anything, etc., etc. As the theory Y manager believes that work can be as fun, much fun as play, that people want a sense of responsibility, they want to influence how and what gets done, et cetera, et cetera. So the exact opposite. And of course, when you find a manager talking about, well, I'm not sure that the people in the factory floor or the call center floor or whatever have the ability to make those decisions, and we're talking about small decisions here, of course, you just voice to theory X. Because mm. mm. the key contribution from that work is the assumptions that I hold about people Right. in the workplace are influenced by my own belief system. So that's the more complex version of it. And, of course, it's been very, very funny with the whole return to work post-COVID kind of new work stuff that's been going on for the last 12 months when managers might be, I, I think, pretending to be theory Y for quite some time. They slip back into theory X mode when they start to say things like, well, I'm not sure if they continue to work from home, they'll be very productive. So they just said they don't trust anybody much in their organisation. So the truth will out eventually. So that's job enrichment. The last is uh, job crafting, which is what I tend to favour because it's done by the, the staff member in collaboration with the manager. And again, the efficiency people would say, but that's a lot of management time taken up. And the effectiveness response would be, but they spend time coaching these people anyway. So it becomes part of the coaching process to talk about how can we build more autonomy, variety, et cetera, into your job. And uh, that's a, an ongoing kind of process, and it, it tends to stay away from demarcation issues that might be part of the job enlargement argument, etc., and focus on what makes the job more motivational and how can we do that. And I mean, I mean coming back to engagement surveys kind of things, I've seen a manufacturing concern improve its engagement by 12 percentage points simply by their argument, simply by focusing on improving autonomy in every job throughout the organisation. And given what I saw, I was prepared to believe them. Yeah, I'd believe it too. It's huge, you know. Yeah. So so job crafting, so that's kind of getting together with my manager and thinking, yeah. just basically thinking about ways we can 
make the job yeah. or improve the job essentially. Yeah. yeah, it's it's all about you know finding the right solution for the right problem. So I think one of the wrong problems that organisations are confronting at the moment is the capability of frontline leaders. So there's uh, there's a big issue out there with frontline leadership development right around the world, not just Australia and New Zealand. And it's around the capabilities of those frontline leaders to effectively manage, motivate, etc., the people that are working for them. And and I've long held a theory that one of the issues there, and it's also I said earlier why so many of the engagement providers report low global scores, is that these jobs that have poor job design are, let's face it, they're boring, right? They're not exciting. They're not interesting. They're not meaningful. They don't give a sense of purpose. They are boring. Clock in, do it. Don't piss the wrong person off. Clock out, go home. And so the jobs, again, to use the phrases from the work of Hackman and Oldham, the jobs are essentially not motivating. And so therefore, there's a hell of a lot of pressure, and it's too much pressure on frontline leaders to motivate people because it's almost impossible to motivate somebody when they're doing an unmotivating job. And so rather than looking at the job design and saying, we need to do something about that, they look at the leaders, frontline leaders, and say, oh, we need to do some frontline leadership development. Well, you possibly do, and it won't do any harm, of course, but it's the wrong solution to the wrong problem. Yeah, interesting. And and what a tough spot. It's like your first leadership gig, and you've got to lead a team in jobs that are essentially demotivating. Right? Yeah. They're essentially unplug my brain, you know, I'm cruising, I'm not yeah. engaged. You've got to come in and try and, you know, beat the drum or do the dance or whatever to get everyone going. That's pretty tough. It is indeed. And in 40-odd years of doing this, I've always thought that the frontline leader role is probably the hardest leadership step you'll ever do in your career because you, you go from being mates with the people that you're now supervising to being their boss. That's difficult in itself. You're doing it often with minimal support. You're doing it in a context where the jobs you're trying to, to manage are not particularly motivational, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of all the steps in the career process from right down the bottom to the very top, I've always thought that first one's probably the toughest. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And it, so it sounds like with the job crafting, so it's really just getting people involved and, in, in, you know, coming up with ideas for their own role. You know, yeah, what do you want to do? Not much more complicated than that, right? So... It's me saying to you in one of our weekly, whatever it might be, one-on-one coaching sessions, is look, you know, how do you think that you could create more autonomy in your job? What what can be done differently to give you a sense of what you're doing is, includes different things, that it's not too boring or whatever word you want to use. And you will always come up with an You might stare at me for a couple of seconds to start with as you think, but don't panic. They'll always come up with an answer of some sort. Yeah, exactly. and. You know, back to that point earlier as well, Sean, I talked about clarity and of what we're trying to achieve as well as, you know, capability or, or skill. Because I remember and when you talked about call centers being the, or, you know, back offices being the, the factories of today, yep. I remember visiting a, a back office that we had as a company, not human synergistics before I joined, but we had a back office. And I went there and, and I remember because I worked in headquarters and Everyone, would, these guys would basically pump out reports and stuff like that, right? Yeah. And everyone yeah. would complain like these numbers are obviously wrong. Like, why didn't they stop and and check this? And it's like because everything in their job tells them not to do that. It says you click here, click there, follow step yep. A, step B. So even though the numbers come out and it's obvious to anyone who knows that it can't be correct, they just follow the steps. And so I kind of said, well, for one, because we'll jump up and down on them if they actually 
try to do something, they get jumped on, <laughs> right? Yeah. So what message do I get? And B, when I went to visit them, it was really interesting because I held a, a little session for, I had a particular team that supported us and I did a session on just, you know, how does the company make money? How are we actually successful? And it was like, whoa, they had never, no one had ever explained this to them before. And they actually went, Sean, and got other teams. And suddenly yeah. I had like a group of like 40 or 50 people <laughs> listening to this presentation. But it was like, no wonder they can't yeah. make, dis- make yes. calls and stuff because it's in a yeah. total vacuum of yeah. knowing why it matters. And to yeah. them, they were just moving numbers and letters around on spreadsheets. There was no yeah. connection to what that actually meant. And in job design terms, that's lack of significance in terms of understanding the impact of what they do, and it's lack of identity in terms of understanding the wholeness of what they do. They do one part of it, and that's it. And again, this is a a part of the advent of technology, and I'm obviously not against technology. We wouldn't be able to do this if we didn't have it, is that so many jobs or so much of the work that these jobs do are, as you say, just click on this, click on that, do you want this, yes or no, click on that, push button, report produced. and That's all very, very efficient, but what it does is it does not require people to think. And so therefore, over time, people lose the ability to think. And so that then impacts on the passive defensive aspects of the culture. Then, of course, gets overlaid by the culture itself in terms of, well, if I do take a bit of a risk and change that figure, what will happen to me if I'm wrong? Mm -hmm. No, I won't change it. I'll leave it as somebody else can take responsibility for that. And it's such a typical thought pattern. Yeah, so typical. And I kind of love just, you know, those four ideas, so job rotation, enlargement, enrichment, and particularly job crafting at the end. And, you know, if you're in one of those roles that isn't particularly motivating, how could you take it on yourself to, you know, have that conversation with your manager and craft your own role? You know, it doesn't just have to be something that's, you know, comes from above, you know, but how do you kind of uh, do it from your spot? We assume a constructive cultural course, and then in a constructive culture, the the individual will bring that up with the manager, the manager will deal with that constructively and they say, fantastic ideas, let's look into how we can do this. But of course, we know that there are a large number of passive defensive and aggressive defensive cultures out there. So it's highly likely that the manager will react in a defensive way. So it does, and those cultures take a little bit of courage to do that. But you would present your case, basically. You would say that you believe the job could have more of this, et cetera, whatever, by B autonomy, et cetera. Describe what that means to you, what it actually involves in terms of more autonomy, and what are the benefits for your job and the benefits for that supervisor manager as well. And then the cultural kick in, they'll either be accepting of that or not. And, but as a manager, you know, if, if your person comes to you and says, hey, I want to be more involved, I want to make more decisions, I want to do more stuff. I'm all for it. Like, that's awesome. You know, you got someone who's up for it. So, you know, that's all good. I've got kind of one one last thought that just occurred to me as we were talking. I remember when I interviewed Focus Software on the podcast some time back, who were very successful in in creating and shaping a constructive culture. And they, they kind of boiled the job design stuff down to one simple sentence. And I quite liked it. It stuck with me all this time which was they basically went around, they'd ask themselves, you know, of their teams, do these people, you know, does this person have a meaty, meaningful role? (laughs) Yeah, a meaty and meaningful role, as in they can get their teeth stuck into something that matters, you know, significance. It's meaningful. It makes a difference. You know, they can make calls and stuff like that. And it was basically, they could kind of just hand on heart, is it a meaty, meaningful role? And if they 
couldn't say yes, then what are we going to do about it to make it more meaty or more meaningful? That's all it is. That's outstanding. Yeah. You know, so I just love the simplicity of that. Yeah. And it gets to the heart of it. And of course, what's happening right now is again, sort of rubber hits the road kind of thing around job design that with this whole return to work or hybrid work models, whatever it might be, or as the news media has decided to call it the great resignation, is that you think about it as you've worked from home over the last, you know, roughly 18 months on and off. You've had a lot more autonomy because you get to decide the order of events. Mm -hmm. You've had a lot more variety because you can actually walk out of your home office for five minutes and play with your kids or whatever and then go back to work. And all these things that that are actually inherent in good job design actually are forced upon organisations with this work-from-home phenomenon. And it's one of the reasons so many people are saying, but I don't want to go back to the office because when I go back to the office, I know it's going to be highly regimented. I can't take two minutes out and, and play with the kids. I can't sit there and look at the, the hills or whatever I can see out the window. It's going to be another building 20 feet away from me kind of thing. And all that autonomy, variety and stuff is just going to go backwards again. So it's really interesting to see the, how people are responding to that. You need to come back to the office. No, I don't want to. And I think it's because of these job design elements. And so it's probably a good note to end on, Sean, is you know, now might be an opportunity actually yeah. for organizations to take a look at this job design yeah, stuff yeah, because it's you know, if we're moving to hybrid or whatever it might be, you know, naturally the design is changing. So yep. how can we be purposeful and think about how can we build in autonomy, yep, variety, absolutely. feedback from the job so can people tell how they're doing just from doing it? Yep. Identity, so I get to do a whole piece of work. Significance, I make a difference. My effort, good or bad, or mediocre, actually impacts other people. And even interdependence, you know, do I work with others? And that's particularly in a remote environment, one to really think about, you know, am I working with others or is it a one-person show Yep. Yep. type thing? So very timely, Sean. Absolutely. All right, brilliant. That's That's been really interesting for me, Sean, because this is one I'm, I'm really interested in lately, doing a bunch of culture measures and it's often an area that's a bit lower so if it's lower for you you know if it's lower for you and you're listening in then think about those you know how can we just craft the job right together between employees and managers and or you know add in some of those rotations cross-skilling enrichment enlargement you know doesn't have to be a wholesale redesign of roles how can we just tweak them how can we just add to them yep Beautiful. Keep keep in mind one of the the golden truisms, not what you do, but how you do it that matters. I love it. Beautiful. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Dominic. See ya. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Bites. If you enjoy the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, leave us a review. It helps other people to find the show. If you have a question you'd like us to answer email podcast at human-synergistics.com.au. We'd love to answer it. This podcast is copyrighted by Human Synergistics Australia, all rights reserved. To learn more about what we do, visit human-synergistics.com.au. today's episode of Culture Bites, we talked about the How Culture Works model. The How Culture Works model is from the Organizational Culture Inventory and Organizational Effectiveness Inventory.
The feedback report for these surveys and other culture change resources are copyrighted by Human Synergistics International. Research and development by Robert A. Cook and J. Clayton Lafferty. All rights reserved. Please contact us if you would like to review any of these resources for organisational change and development.